0: Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's Message of the Week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. Well, we're continuing a sermon series in Isaiah. So before I get going this morning, I think we're going to read the passage. Will it be, be up on the screen or if you've got a Bible, open it up to Isaiah 42. Now, to find Isaiah, you can generally open the Bible in the middle, and hopefully it will fall down somewhere near Isaiah. And we're looking at chapter 42 today, verses 1 to 9. Now, I'm reading this from the ESV Bible, um, so there might be a little bit of differences in translation. But we'll deal with them in a few moments. So this is Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. Please do keep that passage open, we're going to look through it today as we continue a sermon series you've been doing throughout this term on the book of Isaiah. And today I want to, to speak to you about two things. I want to speak to you about the identity of God and a different hope. The identity of God and a different hope. Now, it's a real joy to be with you this morning. As Adam says, we are lifelong friends. I cannot remember a time when I didn't know Adam. And as we've already heard of 40 years of wonderful uh, ministry and God doing amazing things, what, you're 40 in about 18 months' time, right? Not, not to remind you, and remind you of the seven months that I am younger than you. So, yeah, we've been going nearly 40 years as friends, and uh, it's wonderful to be here at Hope Church. It's wonderful to see Adam in his context. I'm, I'm a vicar of the Church of England, so it's really hard for me to come visit because I have to work for Sundays. So, it's lovely to come and see the ministry in the church that Adam is a part of. And it's lovely because he's been there at such important moments of my faith. We were together in the toddler group, and I can't remember a time when I didn't call his parents, Uncle Tony and Auntie Pam. I remember our parents doing sketches in church, and there's an infamous sketch where they turned the old McDonald's cartons, the red ones, into devil horns. Yeah, it worked. Adam and I did our first camp together, I think around age 9 or 10 when we went to Cohen Bay, and he's still devastated that he lost five pounds on the top of Conway Castle. That's a lot of money when you're lying. We've been there in crusader camps. We've been there when we've given our lives to Jesus. I still remember when Adam went on a trip to Poland with my older brother. He came back and he, he gave his verse to me meeting James, which transformed my faith at that point. Verse from James saying, he who knows the good, he should do it and doesn't do it, sins. And there was me thinking as a 15-year-old, I'm a pretty good guy, just being struck down by God. I'm actually realising that there are so many areas of my life where I needed his grace. Still remember that time, Amy's, uh, Amy's birthday party for New Year's Eve, where we sat down and we prayed the New Year in, and we vowed at that point to pray every day. Our Holy Spirit, and that simple prayer, and that year that we vowed that together was one of the most life changing years of my life. And as we've grown together, as, as we've grown families, we've been there at weddings. I think the last time I was here at Hope, see, not in this physical place, was Emily's Thanksgiving service. I think that was the last time I was with Um And it's wonderful to see the way that God has been moving in our lives. When we be close, when we've been far apart over many years. And so it's a wonderful privilege for me today to come and speak to you about uh, Isaiah. And I know Adam invited me, you know, hopefully because he trusts me and you know, doesn't think what I'm gonna say is rubbish. But because I have a love and a passion for this book of Isaiah. It's a book that's really close to my heart. When I was studying uh, training, and I, I did a lot of studies in Old Testament, uh, particularly I did a PhD on satire in the Old Testament, which literally is a hundred thousand words of it's a big joke. But we looked at something, and I looked at some of these passages in Isaiah, particularly when you heard today when God talked about, uh, I don't give my praise to carved idols. In this passage in Isaiah, there was a load of satires, loads of jokes where God mocks the idols. of, Well, look, you've got hands, but you can't do anything, you've got feet, but you can't walk. And compared to the statue, the stone, the inanimate object, the living God is so much more. And it's lovely to be in this turning point, I think, in the sermon series, where you've done a lot of work, I think, on the background of Isaiah, looking at some of the key texts and some of the key themes. And from today, you're going to change and you're going to shift. And particularly, you're going to work three of these chapters from 40 to the end of the book, and you're going to see how God has a different hope. And you're going to see how these chapters in Isaiah lay the foundation for everything that's going to come when Jesus comes and walks on this earth. You're going to see how it wasn't coincidence that the coming of Jesus was planned. It was prophesied and it was prepared and through these chapters in Isaiah as we know the person of Jesus Christ in our lives you're going to meet him afresh as he meets you in your own darkness in your own struggles and he brings light and he brings hope. Before we get into Isaiah 42 this morning, I want to talk about the recent Marvel show, She Hulk Attorney at Law. Now, you may have watched this, and I'm very, very wary of bringing up a Marvel show in a sermon because of spoilers. You may have lined up to watch this over the next few weeks, and I've got to be very, very careful in what I say that I don't spoil the plot. Adam will know my older brother is infamous at spoiling films. He spoiled The Sixth Sense for me, The Usual Suspects. Any film with a good twist, my brother spoiled. Probably spoiled it for Adam as well. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to be very, very careful. So we're going to be talking about the show, but I'm not going to re- reveal plot. Anyway, I want to consider the show She-Hulk, Attorney at law, because it does a wonderful thing of examining What is your identity when you're two different things? And really, this is a microcosm of the whole superhero genre. Every superhero struggles with their superpowers and when they're a superhero, and then their normal life, and whether or not they're actually a superhero. Are they Batman, or are they Bruce Wayne? Are they Superman, are they Clark Kent, are they Spider-Man, are they Peter Parker? It's something that flows through the superhero genre and we see it overtly examined in She-Hulk, Attorney at Law. We see it in the title, we see it's called She-Hulk, and for those of you who really don't care about comics, I'll do a quick explanation. She-Hulk is the cousin of The Hulk, who's a big green guy who gets big when he gets angry, turns green and smashes a load of stuff. She's in a car crash with her her cousin, and some of his blood, Uh, falls into her wounds, and she gets transformed into the She-Hulk. Except, while he (laughs) has spent 20, 30 years struggling with how to control his power, because she's female and she knows how to control anger, and that's a normal part of everyday life for her, she can do it straight away. And so the whole nine episodes of the Marvel series are examining these two identities that she has. On one level, she's Jennifer Walters, attorney at law, who's been working her whole life to get to the position in a male-dominated world to be a respected lawyer. And suddenly, her life changes. She becomes She-Hulk. And people just want her to do superhero law. And the tension that runs through the series is, is she Jennifer Walters, the person, the lawyer, or is she She She-Hulk? Persons person she can turn into and smash bad guys. And why I think this is a really interesting and what we would call a duality, it's partly because it resonates with my own identity. I'm what's called mixed race. Uh, I'm, I'm half, uh, well technically I'm half manx that's someone who's from the Isle of Man. And then my other half, I'm Chinese Malay. So my mum is from, uh, she's Chinese ethnically, but she grew up in the island of Penang in Malaysia. And as Adam can testify, Auntie Bay was terrifying. I think she made him write down his predicted GCSEs and A-level results before you got there. I even think you may have called my mum before your own parents. <laughs> you called me before your own parents. So let mum know that he was okay on his predicted grades. So the whole idea of mixed identity, to come from two worlds, is something that flows into my own struggles with my own identity. But why I'm talking about She-Hulk today is we'll talk about God's identity in a little bit. Because the other thing She-Hulk does is it can't decide what sort of show it is. Is it a superhero show? Or is it a lawyer show? Like Ally McBeal, Law & Order, all those lawyer shows, you know, that are on American TV. And it overtly wrestles with this, with the the main character again and again and again, reminding the audience that this is a lawyer show. It's not for me to smash up bad guys, it's for me to be a good lawyer. And really, it's it's, it's a comment on the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, which became successful when it realized that it wasn't making superhero movies, it was making different movies with superheroes in it. Captain America, the Winter Soldier is a spy thriller, poor Ragnarok is a buddy cop uh, movie, and so on and so forth. It's the same duality in the show. It is both a superhero show and a lawyer show at the same time. And why this duality is important, as I've preambled on to get to Isaiah 42 is because that's exactly the same thing that's happening in our text today. We have two seemingly different things being contained both and in the same text. And why She-Hulk is a very good way in is because one of the things that is going on in Isaiah 42 is someone is being put on fire. And that person is God. From chapter 40 onwards, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, the text changes, and we have what are called trials, speeches. We have all the characters of the trial. We have witnesses. We have defendants. We have lawyers. And in Isaiah 40 to 55 in particular, we see God... Standing up at the dock and defending himself to the people who are needing to hear this lesson. God stands at the dock and declares who he is, what his identity is, what his power and capability is to the people who got to the point when they don't know if God is with them at all. It is a courtroom, it's a trial, and God stands at the dock to declare his identity. But not just that, in Isaiah 42, we also see a change, and a change in the prophecy. But it's not just about God declaring who he is, but we have a duality of genre. This passage is also about God changing the nature of what hope is. And particularly, the question of who you hope in. To give you a bit more of the background, I think the last uh, sermon you had was on the end of Isaiah chapter 38 and 39. And you would have learned about the king Hezekiah, great name, uh, Laura vetoed that to name uh, my son. Uh, I don't know why. Um Jehoshaphat as well. Um, anyway, Isaiah chapter 38 and 39 ends with Hezekiah being ill and God's promise coming through. And this miracle happening where this crazy big Assyrian empire who's coming down on the kingdom of Judah somehow gets stopped. And then in chapter 40, verse 1, suddenly the prophecy changes. And it changes who the audience is. And this is really, really important if you're going to read the book of Isaiah. Is You've got to realise that when Hezekiah dies, there's about 100, a 150-year gap. Suddenly, within a chapter, change to who is listening to the prophecy. And when it starts, comfort, comfort my people... Suddenly you realize that something's happened to the Jewish people in the meantime. And that thing that's happened is the Babylonians have invaded and we know through the books of Kings and Bethlehem what happens and particularly the prophet Jeremiah who, who laments the destruction of Jerusalem. And the exiles get taken away from their home hundreds of miles across the Middle East and they're forced to be in Babylon. And we know some of those stories, you might remember the story of Daniel, one of those Jewish people who goes across. You might remember the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, who go back and return the exile back into Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 40 is a change of tone, and it's a change of people. And we know it's a change of audience, because in chapter 45 we will have mention of King Cyrus, who was a Persian king, who becomes very important. In the return of the exiles, but it also changes the context of the people listening. I don't know if any of us can understand the gravity of what it's like to have your home destroyed and to be taken by the enemy hundreds of miles far away from home where you don't speak the language where you don't know anyone, where you don't know the culture, you don't know the processes, and where you have no rights or privileges because your nation has been destroyed. Possibly the pictures we've seen of those fleeing from Ukraine give us a sense of the depth of that calamity. And where the people of Israel were in their psychological well-being at that point. If you want to know, my recommendation is to read Psalm 137. It's a psalm that was made famous by the band Boniem by the Rivers of Babylon, where we sat down in the early webs. Boni gets it wrong. They get it wrong really badly because they sing are really upbeat by the rivers of Babylon. And you read the psalm and you read the pain, you read the lament, you read the trauma that is in those words. So right at the end of the song, we get possibly one of the most difficult bits of the Bible, where the people are actively asking God to dash the babies of their enemies on the rocks, because that is the pain that they feel in that moment. This is who Isaiah 14 to the end is being written to. People in deep darkness. And if your home's been destroyed, if you've been moved, if you're being ruled over, as you read your scriptures and you read of the promise and the covenant of the God who comes and saves you, who's your God, who's your and you're his people, suddenly you're going to question, well, is worshipping this God any good? Who is this God? Do they actually have any power? How can I trust them? And what hope can there be in my situation? And it's in that context you realise that the first part of these passages are about God justifying himself. It is God put on the dock and God put on the trial. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 42, particularly in verses 5 to 9. And if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to flip this round today. We're going to look at verses 5 to 9 before we go back to verses 1 to 4. And we're going to start in verses 5 to 9 because they reflect what's going on in chapter 40 and 41. And they reflect the words of God standing in the dark. Proclaiming to the people in exile, in darkness, in anguish, who he is. Verse 5: Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, and spread out the earth and what comes from it. He gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. And suddenly we have a change of, of a voice. It's not The prophet speaking about God, it's God himself saying, I am the Lord. And those four simple words in English are repeated in verse 8. I am the Lord. And their significance, that anyone who follows Christ can never, never be downplayed. This is God declaring to you, declaring to me, declaring to the Israelites, declaring to the Jews, declaring to the people throughout the generations what his name is. I don't know if you know that God has a name. You don't use it very often, although you certainly used it this morning when you sang Hallelujah. The word Hallel means in Hebrew, praise, Yah. Is a shortened version of Yahweh, the name of God. And when you see in your Bible the Lord written in capital letters, what it says in the original text is Y H W H Yahweh, Yahweh, the Lord. That is his name. And what's amazing about names? And one of the reasons why I'm glad Lord of is calling our son Hezekiah, is we call our eldest son Theodore. Because what his name meant, mattered to us. And Theodore comes from Greek, it means gift of God, and we rejoice in that gift, even when he's been very annoying. So what does Yahweh mean? we need to go back and flip back in our Bibles. You don't have to do it now. I'll tell you what happens. Back to Exodus chapter 3 and the burning bush. And Moses standing before that burning bush, having that same doubt, having that same anguish, because the people were slaves in Egypt. And God proclaiming him again, what is his name? Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. Technically, probably, I will be who I will be. And what we see there in the Hebrew is, we see the word I am, when you take away the front R letter and change it into the third person form which is God, it becomes He is. When God talks about Himself, He talks about Himself as I am. When we talk about Him, we talk about Him as He is. This is the God. You follow. This is the God who loves you. This is the God who we praise, whose very name means I am. And you can bet, suddenly, in this chapter in Isaiah 42, the original writer having a headache because he wants to say, I am, I am, but he can't say that. Because that makes no sense, so he does a funny Hebrew grammatical construction where he takes out the verb to be and we just have I, the Lord. Insert the am because that's what you need to do. I, Yahweh. And for those who've lost hope, for those who were struggling day to day, The simple truth that in the very heart, in the very identity, in the very name of God is simply his existence. I am. He is. He will never go. He will never leave you. He is never far away. This was the first foundation that they needed to trust in a new hope. You see, we can only find hope and we can find trust in the one who offers it. And this is why the identity of God matters at this moment. This is why God puts himself on trial to (coughs) declare who he is. It's because (coughs) the people need to know who are they hoping in. And we see a couple of other things through these verses in 5 to 9. We see that God isn't just the existent one. We see that this existent one is the creator, the former, the one who knit the atoms of the universe together. I don't know if you saw the pictures from NASA of the pillars of creation. Google it, it's amazing, where you see these hydrogen clouds. Form out into pillars, and at the end of them, stars are literally being born. This Yahweh, this existent one, is the one who is setting those pillars into motion. And you can trust him because of his power. You can trust him much more than that. As verse 6 goes on to tell us, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the nations. This is not the language of a transcendent, powerful God who's looking at the glory of God and basking in its wonder and demanding praise and worship from the creation. These are the words of a Personal, A loving, an intimate and a caring God, who despite having the magnitude of creation at his fingertips, knows and loves each one of his creation. Verses 5 to 9 tell us, as God stands in the dock. Who he is. He is the existent one. He is the creator. He is the personal lover. And what this passage reminds us is that when God's identity is that, it doesn't make him inert. And going back to the idol passages, you'll see some of them in chapters 41, you'll see some of them in chapters 42 and 44, where the idols are not because they are exactly that. They're statues, they're inanimate, and they cannot do anything that makes a difference. Judas God is different. He is existent, he is creator, he's personal but he's also active. Seeing these words in verse 6, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Hopefully these words are resonating with you because they're ones we see in Jesus' declaration when he gets out the Isaiah scroll in the Gospels. Actually, Jesus doesn't quote from Isaiah 42, he quotes from Isaiah 61, which I think you're going to hear about. In a few weeks' time, but the words and the rep- repetition we can see here in this passage. <coughs> but God moves from the God, and in this duality of genre, takes who He is and puts it into action. And it's because of that we get these wonderful verses in verses 1 to 4, where the identity of God is transformed into an agent who is going to change the world. Behold, see, look, my servant. These are the first of four what's called servant songs in the book of Isaiah, and they're really the foundation, the prophecies for the coming Messiah, in whom Jesus fulfills every single one of those prophecies. But if you can imagine what it would be like for the hearers, they have seen their nation destroyed, they want to go home. The wonderful thing about Isaiah chapter 40 is it's about the valleys going up and the mountains going out, so God will make a way for them to get home. And so the person that they would be expecting God to say is, behold my general." Maybe if they weren't so convinced of the power of might and whether they could take over the Babylonian version, uh, Med empires that were around at the time, maybe they could have heard, behold, my politician, who's going to negotiate your release so that you can get home. Instead, all their expectations are <laughs> subverted. as God says something different. Hold my servant. the person whose very identity is defined by the fact that they are there to serve others. You see, we have seen that the identity of God makes him want to take action, and that action that he is going to take he is going to send someone different. Now, I was really disappointed that Adam in this sermon series decided to call this a different hope. Come on, you could have called this a new hope, and then I could have pulled off so many Star Wars references. It's untrue. But different's a good word because different changes our expectations. And hopefully, when you heard these words about this suffering servant, and we're going to learn later on in Isaiah that this suffering servant is going to, to bear the sacrifice and the sins of the world. They're going to be like a sheep that's gone astray. So, if we're like sheep that's gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord lays on him, lays on the servant, the one who becomes the lamb, the sacrificial system that God has instituted to redeem the world. This servant, in a language of intimate delight, words which echo the baptism of Jesus, the one whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. This is my son, the beloved, And as we know from the story of the baptism of Jesus, the Spirit comes down and descends on him, fulfilling these words, I have put my Spirit upon him. The suffering servant, whose first appearance was told about to these people who had lost hope, becomes fulfilled, so amazingly, so perfectly, (coughs) in the person of Jesus Christ. And it's why our faith is different. Yes, our God is powerful. Yes, our God is creator. Yes, our God is loving and personal. But that God chooses to bring his identity, to show his identity to each one of us, to show that love by coming to serve. That's why the hope is different. And for the people in exile, as they've they heard these words that they've learned and being reassured of the identity of God as they are picturing what the suffering servant is going to be like, and trust me, they spent 500, 600 years trying to work that out before Jesus comes. Suddenly, hope is different. And this hope is about bringing justice. It's about a God who knows the situation that you are in. A God who reaches into the darkness, and the people walking in that darkness can see a great light. It's a personal hope. One that's met in those words of John 3, 3. Very truly, I tell you, if you want to follow me, you must be born again. So what does it mean for us at this moment? Maybe you've never encountered this suffering servant, this Christ, this God who looks different. Maybe you need the simplicity of knowing that God is there. He is the existent one. He's the one who has been throughout eternity and will be forevermore. Maybe you just need to know, to have hope at this moment, that this God is real. Maybe you're struggling, and there are many of us who are struggling at the moment. It may be with the stress of your job. It may be under financial pressures that you never would have imagined a year ago when you budgeted, for 2022. You might be worried that your mortgage is being negotiated and how are you going to afford the raise and the rise in costs. Maybe you're coming into this winter thinking you might have to choose between whether there's going to be food or the table or whether or not you turn the radiator on. Maybe you just don't feel understood as for three years since the pandemic hit, we have lost our anchor of who we are. Maybe you can resonate with the struggles of the exiles. We just want words of hope. That things might be better tomorrow. That things might be better in a years time, but ultimately, someone hears your pain, hears your worry, and promises that you can trust in him. God makes that promise with you today. And for the people who are listening to these prophecies in a foreign land, seeing their home, Jerusalem, their temple destroyed, everything that they know and love gone. If they can have hope at that darkest time, so can <coughs> And this hope that we are talking about is not something abstract. It's not something, you know, I hope Coventry City are going to win on Saturday. That's a me bad joke. Doesn't happen very often. It's a fun. It's a defined, it's an argued hope where God has sat in the dock and justified and proved who he is, and by that action has caused Christ to come into the world. To I meet mean, with anyone and everyone who wants to meet with him to bring light into that darkness. I'm going to write down up and I think we're going to move into a time of response. And in that time, I want you just to consider what do you need hope for today? What do you need hope for today? And who is going to bring you and give you that hope? Is it the God, the creator, the one who loves you, the one whose very name means the existent one? Is it, can you trust in that God if he sent his suffering servant to die for you? To bring hope even at the most difficult and the darkest times? You can sing one night away. I'd like to invite you to stand if you feel comfortable. You might want to put your arms out as an offering. You may want to sing these words, which I think are one of the most beautiful hymns in Christian worship, as they declare the actions of the agency of God. But you may also want to receive them, and as the words flow over, have the image of the cross and the suffering servant hanging there where sorrow and love flow mingled down and meet you in your lives. Let's stand and let's sing. And I'd love it if you would be able to feel that you're able to offer your arms out and let's sing nicely back.